Really quickly, uh, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Um, this is now 2019. We just went into a brand new year. Another Now there's 363 more days left in this year. And I don't know about you, but I'm already behind in my Bible reading plan. So it's okay if you are too. Only two days in and we're already messing up. Um, but this is common. You know, we start Bible reading plans uh, around the New Year's, um, and there's, I think, <laughs> I was thinking about this today, that I, there's almost no excuse nowadays to not read your Bible, and even though I say that I missed today, it's, it, uh, there's almost no excuse not to, because we have like all these apps, and apps give us notifications, and we get those notifications that can literally just give us the verses that we need to read for this day, all these types of things, all this technology, um, <laughs> that there's almost no excuse not to read our Bibles. Um, but also, I like to say this, too, because I remember in college, I sometimes felt pressured to, you know, read large chunks of Scripture in your daily Bible reading. And I would just say this, don't feel pressured to read, like, 14 chapters of the Bible in the morning. Because, number one, that's not very practical. And, number two, you probably won't retain much of that information if you're reading 14 chapters or even four chapters uh, my, the thing, I'm, I've been in the book of Mark, I'll just, a personal note, I'm reading through the book of Mark, and I'm doing uh, like a chapter a week. I'm still in Mark chapter 3, and I've been doing it for probably two months, so I've been taking it a lot slower than what I even attended. Um, <laughs> so don't feel like you have to read through the Bible in a year, take a book and spend a year in it even. I think perhaps we, if we take smaller bites out of Scripture, you'll be surprised the big things that you can learn from those really small little portions. Um, and I say that because sometimes when we're going through these Bible reading plans, we can get really bogged down um, when we get to like books of genealogies. Right, where like you know, if you start a Bible reading plan, you start through with Genesis one, and that's pretty good. We learn about creation, and then Genesis two, we learn about Adam and Eve, and oh, we're doing fine. And then day three, we do Genesis three, and we learn about the fall. Oh, that's that's cool. And then Genesis four, oh no, we got a genealogy. But we 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 push through Genesis four, but then we come to Genesis five, and there's another one. And then maybe we just give up when we skip to John or we read Matthew or something. <laughs> And then we skip to Matthew, and there's another genealogy. <laughs> we get messed up there, too. These lists of, like, who begat who begat this person, and these two people begat that person. Um, I think they often, I can just confess to you, they often make me stop reading sometimes, too, just because <laughs> it, it often makes us question and wonder, why in the world are these lists of people here? Why do we have Jesus' uh, Ancestry.com report in the Bible? Why do we have this? Um, and I think we can get distracted by uh, always trying to figure out why they're there, and, 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 or we can get distracted by thinking that they're useless. Um, the genealogies are not useless. It may seem that way at first glance, just a listing of names, just a listing of this father had this son, and this son became the father to this son, and all these kinds of things. They're not wasted space. And in fact, I would like to um, read this little portion from the famous preacher over in London, C.H. Spurgeon, um, because he, he compares scripture to like an Egyptian mummy, which I think is really cool. He says it like this. He says, the Bible treats of great things and of great things only. There is nothing in the Bible which is unimportant. That's an important sentence. There is nothing in the Bible which is unimportant. Every verse has a solemn meaning. And if we have not found it yet, we hope to do it. 
You have seen mummies wrapped round and round with folds of linen. God's Bible is like that. It is a vast roll of white linen woven in the loom of truth. So you will have to continue unwinding it roll after roll before you get the real meaning of it. And for all eternity, you will be unwinding the words of this great volume. But I love that picture that you're almost like unwrapping a mummy. But the difference is we're not unwrapping a dead thing. We're unwrapping a living thing, which is the only difference in that comparison. Because uh, we can unwrap the Bible and find new things. And even in the genealogies, that's what we're going to find. They may seem really tedious. And it's going to seem tedious as I'm about to read the first 17 verses of Matthew 1. But these verses, even in these verses of just listing names... I want to submit to you that we're going to have the gospel preached to us. So listen uh, carefully. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 of Matthew 1. Uh, Matthew begins, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares, and Zerah of Tamar, and Phares begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. And Aram begat Amminadab, and Amminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz and of Rahab, and Boaz, excuse me, Boaz begat uh, Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Ro- Roboam, and Roboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat jo- Josephat. And Josephat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Joatham, and Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Amon, and Amon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias, and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after that they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliud, and Eliud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathen, and Mathen begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. That may seem like a tedious thing to do, but I did it for a purpose because what I want you to do, if you're doing your own Bible reading plan, is remember this sort of sentence or just remember this whenever you come to a genealogy is don't ask why it's here, but instead just say this is here because of Jesus, or this is here to point me to Jesus. Because almost every genealogy you will have will have something to do with the fact that Jesus was coming from this line and he was coming from the line of David. It almost always has to do with the fact that there's naming and remembering specific people uh, so that we could have them here for us. Every genealogy should make us think back to Genesis 3.15, right? When right after the fall, God gives Adam and Eve the promise that through the woman's seed, the one would come that would crush the serpent's head. 
So very importantly, the offspring become important and who who becomes very important if the offspring of Eve was going to come and crush the serpent's head. It's very important that we know who that is actually talking about. And in fact, um, if you do some little studying, Martin Luther believes uh, there's a verse actually in Genesis, I think it's four or five, when, um, when Eve has Cain, she actually thinks that Cain is the one that, that God was talking about. Obviously, that's not true, and it's, it's just an interesting thing that she thought that the, the promise was going to be filled right away, because it was obviously the seed of the woman was going to come and crush the serpent's head, but it's not just the seed of Eve, it's actually um, the seed of the spirit. Anyways, we can get bogged down on that. Um, but these genealogies are important. They unfold and they unwind for us more and more and more of God's grace. More and more and more of God's mercy. And, and that's what these genealogies do for us, especially this one. This genealogy is super important because it actually is, it, it, this is Matthew presenting to you his thesis. Uh, as we've uh, said a couple times uh, on Wednesday nights for a couple weeks, um, each gospel presents a different view of Jesus Christ and his life and his ministry here on earth. Uh, Matthew's gospel is bent towards showing us Jesus as the true and better king. He's writing to Jews. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And so uh, very clearly he's trying to show his readers the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth was their king. That's why he's connecting, connecting him to not just David. He's connecting him back to Abraham. He's connecting him back to the father of the whole Jewish nation. He's saying, this guy, he can be connected all the way back to Father Abraham. And so he's writing to show them King Christ. And he's writing to show them that this guy, Jesus, the guy that you crucified, is the guy who is your promised Messiah. He is your Christ. He is your King. And he's showing that through Jesus's Parentage, and he's showing it also just like in a legal matter. You know, in the old days, so to speak, over in the old country, uh, if someone had a question of who was uh, rightfully uh, supposed to be king, they would have to go back and check the family tree. And they make sure that your parents are who they say they were, and that now, okay, yes, you have the right to the throne. Essentially, that's what Matthew is doing. That this guy has the right to the throne because look at who are his parents and he can claim the, the, the throne as the rightful king. And he's doing that to show that and also to show that he is the promised Messiah, the one that all the Old Testament prophecies talk about, that all the ones that whisper Jesus' name from Isaiah 9 and Micah 5 to and all over your Old Testaments, this is showing us Jesus and showing us why he's here and why he's important. And within this list of names, though, uh, all these weird names, these weird names that even I can't pronounce correctly, so forgive me for that, um, we're shown enormous amounts of gospel. Enormous amounts of gospel in just these verses that just have names. Um, I want to point out a couple of those verses to you, especially verse 16. Because verse 16 stands out to me because of how different it is. Um, so up until this point, we have this man begat this man who begat this man and so forth. And then in verse 16, it kind of flips the script on that sort of pattern. And Matthew says this way, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. You notice that Matthew doesn't connect Joseph and Jesus together. 
He doesn't say Joseph begat Jesus by Mary. He says that Joseph was married to Mary of whom was born Jesus. I think that's important to note that he's already emphasizing the fact that Jesus wasn't born like everyone else. He wasn't born like a natural person was born into the world. He came as conceived by the Holy Spirit, a virgin born into the world, and is designating this specially divine birth of Jesus Christ, which he was about to go into. He's drawing your attention already and saying, look, Listen up, this is important because Joseph may have been Jesus' legal father, yes, his legal earthly father, but he wasn't his biological father because he was born of the Spirit. He wasn't of uh, the seed of Mary. And so he's wanting to connect that and wanting to show uh, the peculiar nature of Jesus' birth, I think. But also, too, look at verses 3 and then 5 and 6. Because what you'll notice is uh, the mention of four women. And I point that out. He mentions Tamar in verse 3. Then look at verse 5. He mentions Rahab. In your Bible, it may be uh, spelled Rahab, but it's the same thing, just an alternate spelling. Rahab and then Ruth and then in verse 6 of her that had been, with, uh, the, had been the wife of Urias, which you know is Bathsheba. So he mentions Ruth, uh, Tamar, Rahab and Bathsheba. And I think that's interesting for uh, one reason, is just the fact that in, during this time period, you, m- most of the time, especially if you were trying to do a family tree for a king, you wouldn't likely mention the, uh, the women, the wives, the moms. You would mostly, almost predominantly, 100% of the time, just mention the men. Because during this time, they were the most important, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It was a very patriarchal society. They typically only trace male ancestors. And so for Matthew to mention these women is actually abnormal. And I think he's wanting to do it for a couple reasons. It, it, it reveals kind of his emphasis. Because remember, he's writing to Jews. So the mention of these women is the fact that two of them, of these four women, two of them are Gentiles, Rahab and Ruth. They're not Jews. And three of the four have lives that are marred with untold sin. Of course, we know Rahab, she was a prostitute, the one of Jericho who helped the spies uh, in the siege of the Israelites of Jericho. And of course, we know the story of Bathsheba as well. But including these Gentiles into this Jewish family must have been just so offensive to Jews, number one. But I think it points to just the wideness of God's gospel. It's pointing to the fact that it's not just for Jews. This gospel, this king, he's going to come and be the king of everyone. It's pointing to the wideness, the vastness, the freeness of of Jesus' family. But then the mention that these uh, these women especially... Rahab and Tamar and Bathsheba, I think it just goes further to to show that Jesus' family tree is just rife with sinners. It's rife, it's filled with sinners. Verse 6 especially jumps out to me because we know the story perhaps of Rahab and Jericho. uh, And we also know the story in verse 6. And it mentions it forever. It doesn't mention Bathsheba's name. It doesn't mention um, uh, Bathsheba at all, other than the fact that it says, And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias, right there in your face. 
is sin forever mentioned in the line of Jesus the Savior, Jesus the King of the world. It's mentioning uh, the sin of that marked that family perhaps forever. And in fact, it did. Jesus promises after this sin with Bathsheba that, that David's life would never see peace. It would, his kingship and his family life would be riddled with upheaval. So this dark mark, this dark black mark in the life of David and Bathsheba is written for everyone to read for all eternity. Uh, if you, turn, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Samuel has that story. Right, the story of David, he sees Bathsheba, he lusts after her, and he covets her, and he takes what's not his. And he's the literal embodiment of 1 John chapter 2, where it talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And of course, like all great sins, they blow up in David's face. And so now, he's not just had an affair with this woman that was not his wife. He has now gotten her pregnant, and now he's trying to cover his tracks. And he does so by even more crazy, dastardly, he tries to uh, finagle it so that he makes sure that Uriah gets murdered without having any blood on his hands. He convinces him to take the lead and take the charge in the next siege. He puts him on the front line where he's surely going to get killed first as they go into battle. And of course he does. And so now it looks fine. Of course, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 12, you have that great story that Nathan tells David. That story about how, I think it's a sheep or is it a, it's a oh no, it's not a sheep, it's a, a vineyard. The, 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 the the king wants to steal the vineyard away, and, and we can go in that story. And he calls David the man. He's the man in the story that took what was not his, and so and so so on and so forth. All that to say is that this sin, this this terrible dark season in the life of David and Bathsheba, in the life of this whole nation of Israel, is here for us to read. It's here for us to see in black and white. The wife, or excuse me, of her that had been the wife of Urias. And it's not just her that's mentioned, it's David the king. Because even this murdering, this adulterous man after God's own heart, as we're later told that he is known as, is part of God's family. And we, if, we had, uh, if we had more time, we could go into many of these people that are here and read their stories, look up what happened in their lives, and we could see the same thing. And what's the point of this? I think the grand lesson of Matthew's genealogy is he has to show us that Jesus was rightfully the king. But it's also, I think, to show us that Jesus saves sinners because sinners are all that there are. Jesus saves sinners because sinners are all that are. Look at his family tree. It's a family tree filled with sinners. Filled with people who made mistakes. Filled with people who messed up. Filled with people who wished they hadn't have done a certain thing or said a certain thing or, or uh, looked a certain way at a certain person or whatever. And what I think is so uh, fascinating about just this, not just this chapter, but actually the whole Bible as a whole, but especially here in the genealogies, is the fact that it doesn't edit out the bad stuff. You notice that? The Bible never hides the skeletons. <laughs> it doesn't put skeletons in the closet and wishes that we would never find them. It never puts them away in hopes that we never notice. <laughs> and I think that's how you know that this book isn't man-made. 
Because if we were writing this book, if I was writing this book and I was trying to write about the hero that we should emulate, the hero that we should serve, and the hero that has come to save us, I would put the skeletons in the closet. I want to make him appear perfect. He's Superman. He doesn't have a kryptonite. He doesn't have a fault. He doesn't have anything that can break him down. Anything that can break down the story or make, put a bad mark on the story. And yet here in Matthew chapter 1, we have the dirty laundry of scripture aired for everyone to see. Forever. <laughs> Look at this sin. This sin is in the family of God. This sin is in the family line of God. The Bible is never afraid of airing its dirty laundries. God puts his skeletons front and center. I think he does that for a specific reason. He wants to to make sure that you don't mistake who he has come to save. He has come to save people like Tamar. Come to save people like David. Come to save people like Bathsheba. Yes, come to save people like you and like me who mess up on a daily basis because we are sinners. And messed up sinners are the only people that he has come to seek and to save. That's why he says, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he has come for the sick. Not those who think they're righteous. He's come for those who are sick with sin. And in fact, that's what he says. That's what Matthew gets. I think that's the point of why he's doing this. Because look at Matthew 1 and verse 21. Or look at verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, that is Joseph, in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth bring forth his son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This was Jesus' ministry. This was Jesus' mission. To come into the world and see people like this who are wrecked and messed up and save them from that wreckage and from that ruin that they had put themselves in. That's where it says in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Jesus Christ has came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am chief. I think God wants you to never mistake who he has come to redeem. He's come to redeem people who need redemption. He's come to redeem people who need to be rescued, who need to be pulled up. And that's what this genealogy to me preaches to me, is that it brings out in just greater uh, contrast and brighter contrast and more vivid colors the fact that God is gracious towards people who need grace. And that's everyone. He saves sinners because sinners are all that there are. And it shows us the kind of God that we have. The kind of God that we serve, the kind of God that would come down as a little baby and die for us and bleed for us and bleed for the very people that were putting him on the cross. <laughs> I'm going to read this verse because this is the type of God that we have. It's Psalm 86 in verse 15. It says, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. These genealogies, I think, are showing us that. (laughs) A God who is long-suffering, plenteous in mercy. (laughs) He has it in abundance. It's not going to run dry. You can't make it wear out. You can't uh, make God uh, get impatient. 
He is long-suffering. And this is not to excuse the sins that we see here. It's not making an excuse for the fact that these blunders are terrible. They are reprehensible and they are shameful. But it's pointing to a, a new and a better truth that Jesus has died for these types of reprehensible people. And these types of reprehensible acts. And the comforting news is realized when the, in the fact that, that God doesn't just utterly trash these people after they've messed up. He uses them. David is called a man after God's own heart after he had his affair with Bathsheba and after he murdered his Bathsheba's wife or Bathsheba's husband. Then he's called a man after God's own heart because he learned what that meant. It wasn't his fortitude and his faithfulness. It was the fact that he had put his faith in someone else, in Jesus Christ. And I say that to say this because New Year's, they give us promise, they give us hope, they give us lots of things that we can try to do, and these New Year's resolutions, which we kind of mentioned on Sunday. I hate to be the buzzkill, but you probably are going to fail one or two of those resolutions, if not a lot of them. And that's not to discourage you from trying to live up to those resolutions. And it's just the fact... The good news of the gospel isn't an excuse to fail. It's the good news you need to hear when you do. It's the fact that the good news comes to those who are already fallen. That's what Jesus says. He hasn't come to condemn the world. The world is condemned already. I have come to save it. (laughs) He doesn't need to do any condemning work. It's already condemned. And it feels it. That's why it says in Romans 8 that the creation groans for the day of redemption. Because it knows that it is a world that has fallen. These genealogies preach to us this gospel. The gospel that God is patient. He's long-suffering with us. And he uses people who mess up. And it kind of, there's, there's this, this theological truth that I've been um, ascribing to over the years. And this is that if your theological system doesn't have room for it, that your biggest failure is ahead of you, you have the wrong theological system. That might shock us. It may surprise us. But that's the theological, I think, the theological system of the, of the Bible. Your biggest blunder may be years in the future. I hope it's not. I pray to God that it's not. But it might be. I don't think David was writing psalms and, and hanging around with sheep thinking one day I'm going to mess up big time and then I'm going to get right with God. <laughs> no one thinks like that. Sometimes those deep, dark blunders are exactly what we need to, to get our eyes in, in on Christ in the right way. Your biggest failure may be ahead of you, but the glorious fact of this gospel is the fact that Jesus has already died for it. Jesus has already died for your biggest mistake, either behind you or ahead of you. He's put it in and under the blood. To me... This is what this shows. <laughs> he used David. He used people like Bathsheba. And he used people like Tamar and Rahab. And all these other people. Abraham and Isaac. Who don't have perfect stories either. He uses them. To show forth. Just the, <laughs> the glory and the majesty. Of his patience. The beauty of his grace for us. And it shows to me that Jesus is the perfect Savior for all of our hidden skeletons. 
He dies for all of them. He takes them all on himself. And in that, the Father is pleased. You know, there's that interesting, interesting verse in Isaiah 53 where it says that the Father is pleased to crush the Son. He's pleased because he knows now that his law has been satisfied and righteousness is in full display. I think that's kind of what I think of when I think of these genealogies. They're here to show us Jesus. They're here to point us to Jesus. And they do that by showing us some messed up people. But I'm thankful for that. Because maybe you have messed up people in your family. Or maybe you're the messed up person in your family. I don't know. (laughs) But I think that should be a comfort because messed up people are all that there are. And Jesus has come to save those very people who have messed up. He's come to save them from their sins. His name shall be Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I'm so thankful for King Jesus. I hope you are too. Let's pray.